Good evening. Please be seated. Isaiah chapter 31 this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Isaiah. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, you will be fairly lost tonight. You might be fairly lost anyway, but uh, you have no hope of comprehending what's going on without that printed book before you. So there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, and uh, they'll give you a Bible. It'll be marked at where we're studying tonight. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord tonight. But we do try to cover a little bit of ground on Sunday evening, several chapters at least. Well, okay, a couple at least. And when somebody is behaving themselves, sometimes it turns into more. And uh, so we pick things up in uh, chapter 31, and we remember that uh, Isaiah is between chapters, uh, chapters 28 through 33, constitute a series of woes that Isaiah is pronouncing upon Judah, also upon some of the nations that are surrounding Judah. And so he continues this now in chapter 31, and he declares, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And so he is pronouncing a woe once again upon Judah because this is exactly what they're doing, going to Egypt for help against the Assyrian threat rather than turning to God who wanted to help them for free. Why would you pay for a council or help or military or whatever we might pay for to help us out of our bind without turning to God who is desiring to help them for free? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, the horses that Egypt provides, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are, in, are strong, very strong. And then notice this, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. So the Lord notices when we put our faith in Him, when we trust in Him, when He is our first resort in a time of threat and trouble. He notices when we make Him our second resort or when we make Him our last resort. And as we've just been singing and worshiping Him in song, we realize in our spirit and the whole realm of creation understands what is due Him, and that is that He would be our first resort in every problem to look to the Holy One of Israel. He views it this way, that to look to the world first and Him second is not to look at Him uh, in the way that He uh, should be looked to. And, uh, and so He rebukes them for it, and he takes it personally. I mean, he's a heavenly father. If he was just this big robot up there, this uncaring, unfeeling, you know, wind up the world and the universe and then let it just run down and he's indifferent to what's going on, uh, then, you know, a lot of times we can be prone to treat him as if that's what he is, but he isn't. He's a heavenly father. He loves us. And he, like any father, loves to be approached by his children, especially when that father has the resources and the love and the will to solve uh, their children's problems. And yet, he rebukes them in verse 2 and uh, with some really some sanctified sarcasm. And yet, he also, in addition to Egypt, speaking of himself, he also, God, is wise. That's really sad when he's got to remind people, listen, I know you're very impressed with Egypt, but um, I've heard that God is pretty wise as well, and he may have a better plan than the one that you are uh, trying to unfold in, in uh, soliciting Egypt's uh, help. And he is wise, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will rise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. And so he is saying, I am, you don't want my wisdom, you don't want my battle plan, you don't think that I'm powerful, I'm going to show you how powerful I am. I am going to allow Egypt to be defeated, I'm going to allow you to be defeated, all, everything but Jerusalem, and uh, just so you know uh, how inferior your plan is to mine. So important to seek the Lord with our problems, casting all of our cares, the Bible says, on Him because He cares for us, not only for our own good, but it is what He deserves. It is what He is due 
uh, for by virtue of who he is and what he's done in our lives. Now, the Egyptians are men and not God. I mean, imagine God having to speak this way and remind them. Listen, you've got God as a resource, and you've got Egyptians as resource. Yes, I know they're quite famous. They've got a lot of horses and a vaunted military, but they're going to get squashed by the Assyrians. And so, the old saying, uh, the, best, uh, um, the best of men are at best men, and that kind of plays in here. The Egyptians are men and not God. Think, 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 think about what you're doing here. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord uh, stretches out his hand, both he who helps, that is Egypt, will fall, and he who is helped, that is Judah, will fall down. They will perish together. For thus the Lord has spoken to me, as a lion roars, and as a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hills. So even though they were being disobedient to him, ignoring him, he lets them know, your land is going to be conquered, but Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, it will not be conquered. I will defend it as a lion. And he just does this out of the goodness of his heart, not because any faith has been extended to him. And so he said, I'm going to defend uh, you the way that a lion defends um, it, its prey. And of course, uh, lions are known for being quite fierce and and, uh, and fearless, and so that's what he's going to do. I don't know if you ever watched the um, uh, Animal Kingdom, well, Animal Kingdom, dating myself. Who is the guy, remember, that um, did that? And, and then Wide World of Sports came on after that, and the skier fell off the side of the… Listen, wait a second. <laughs> so, memories, like the corner of my mind. So, but if you ever watched National Geographic, there it is. But you see a lion, and a lion has its prey, and what does it do? It puts that big old mitt right over the top of it, doesn't it? And you are not going to take that prey away from it, and certainly not a group of shepherds, no matter how many of them were. It's a picture is that a sheep's been taken. That lion is lying down on its prey. Its paw is over that, and they can shake and try and scare God away from that prey all that they want. And, or the lion, and the lion is simply not going to move. And so God is basically saying, I'm not afraid of the Assyrians. You're afraid of the Assyrians. I wish you'd turn to me. I'm not afraid of them. They're not a problem for me. And I'm going to show you that they're not a problem for me. And I'm going to let them take all of the land except Jerusalem. And I'm going to spare Jerusalem in a way that lets you know that that um, I'm defending you. It's going to be supernatural. And then he also goes on to speak of his defense of Jerusalem in the imagery of a bird defending its young. Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. I love birds. I love to watch them. And uh, it, uh, I didn't always. It's a more recent development in my life. I'm becoming like Mr. Wilson in uh, the Dennis the Menace uh, comic strip or something. I don't know. But I do like them, and they're fascinating to watch. The reason I like them is, biblically, they remind me from the Sermon on the Mount that we're not to worry. That if God takes care of them, and He takes care of them without storehouses and all of this, how much more is He going to take care of us? And so it's a parable kind of a thing that speaks to me, and I like it. And I like to watch them and learn from them. But if you've ever seen a cat, another reason to hate cats. If you've ever seen a cat, you know I'm kidding, those of you who love cats. <laughs> but if you've ever seen a cat that has spotted a nest and starts to go after the young, and you watch that mother, I mean, that mother will do, um, I've seen it repeatedly, where she will then take herself and put herself over here to become the center of t attention by uh, the, the danger to the nest so that the animal will move away from the nest and toward her. And then if uh, that doesn't work, then she will begin to dive bomb the animal. I mean, she has no uh, kind of hope for uh, defeating a cat in any way. And God is speaking of His power, His uh, fearlessness through the lion, 
but he's speaking of his heart, the self-sacrifice that a mother bird is willing uh, to exhibit to save her young. And so God says, I'm going to defend Jerusalem with kind of the ferocity uh, of a lion here, and yet with the tenderness and and the attentiveness of a bird. And so he did. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. And so God calls on them once again to repent and turn back to him. For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin which your own hands have made for yourselves. And so he calls on them to repent to repent means to turn. It means to have a change of mind about my direction and then to change directions as a result uh, of that. And so uh, he says, have a change of mind in light of what I've just said to you about trusting in Egypt. Come on, trust in me. Turn back to me. And as he talks to them about their idolatry here, he says, throw away your idols before you're forced to by the circumstances. Ultimately, Jerusalem would be conquered by the Babylonians. They would lose all of their idols, and God was saying, you're going to lose every object that you love in life more than me. And that's true about every one of our lives. He says, you're going to lose it anyway. And so there's an easy way for this to happen and a hard way for this to happen. You can get rid of your idols as an expression of your love for me, your devotion for me, as an expression of your obedience to me. Or you can lose them when I kind of pry them out of your hand by way of uh, my chastening through the Babylonians. And so he calls on them to do uh, what would inevitably happen, but to do it as an expression of their love for the Lord. And it's a very good word uh, to any of us who are worshiping God, uh, worshiping anything else more than God in our lives tonight. God then speaks about how he's going to miraculously wipe out the Assyrians. He said, then Assyria will fall by a sword not of man. Now, we're just a few chapters away now. Uh, so, just literally within the next three years, we'll hit it. But we're just a few chapters away now from reading about how God does wipe out an Assyrian army, 185,000 frontline troops. I and mean, we're talking about the population of Modesto here. And, and they're wiped out, and God wipes them out by the hand of an angel, not by the sword of man. It was just like nobody could even think that God had that in his bag of kind of tricks to, to do, and yet that's how he was going to do it, and he tells them ahead of time. That's what God knows history in advance. He knows what he's going to do, and so he let them know, Assyria, not going to be defeated by Egypt or anything that you're going to do, not going to fall by the sword of a man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, his young men shall become forced labor, he shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and in other words, he'll flee from uh, Judah back to his land, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And so God warns concerning uh, and prophesies concerning the coming destruction uh, supernaturally of the Assyrian army. And then he comes into chapter uh, 32, and which is a warning to the spoilers we're going to see in just a moment. But God, as, as uh, Isaiah is writing here now, he begins to speak about a king, uh, the Messiah, and how he's going to reign in righteousness during the kingdom age. And so that's how he begins chapter uh, 32 here. And uh, again, giving a righteous remnant. Now remember, we've talked about this before, that even though Judah was doing all of these goofy things and they were rebellious against God, Israel even more so, the northern kingdom of Israel, who did fall and went into captivity to the Assyrians. That was just the majority of the people. There is always a godly remnant of God's people among even an apostate group of God's people, and they were there. And all you have to do, you know, in the United States of America, all you got to do is a, be a 40% minority, and you can't win an election. You can't win one in California, not for righteousness' sake or for any sake. And that's kind of the place that we're in a lot of times, just on a, on a secular kind of level. And so, don't think that 
that every single person down to the, you know, the kid in the sixth grade hated God and was unwilling to walk with Him and was walking in hypocrisy. It's just the majority were. But there was a godly remnant who were looking at this saying, man, we know where this leads. We've read the book. We understand God's warnings in the book of Deuteronomy. What are we doing? But they didn't have the power to turn things around. And God is acutely aware of a godly remnant in any environment that we find ourselves in. And we can feel the same way in the United States of America today, the Western world. Look at the decisions that are being made. We see where this leads. We're seeing this with our eyes wide open. We've got spiritual eyes to see things, and God knows that we can become concerned about all of it we, and what's going to happen, the judgment that's going to come, etc. And so God here has a word to speak to the remnant. Nobody else was listening to him, but there was a remnant. I think it's wonderful to realize that he notices the remnant. And so no matter what the rest of the world is doing, or even those that profess to be God's people. You say, oh, what difference does my life make? What difference does my obedience make? My faithfulness to God's calling make? It makes a difference. God notices it. And He's got His eye on you, and He's watching you. Our faithfulness matters. And He's called us to be faithful to Him, a good and faithful servant in this time in human history, and he's got a word for them, and he has a word for us as well. And he reminds them that it's not always going to be like this. The kings aren't always going to be rotten in the world like they, so many of them were over the kingdom of Judah. And he reminds them that a better day is coming, Messiah is coming, Jesus is coming back, and behold, this king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. And so Jesus' reign is going to be marked by absolute righteous, perfect uh, justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. In other words, he'll provide protection for his people. The rulers over Judah at this time were not providing adequate protection for the people and because of their failure to turn to God. The eyes of those who will see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. There won't be any more spiritual deafness or spiritual blindness in the kingdom age. There, remember that Satan will be bound during that thousand years, and so it's going to be a time in which Jesus is ruling on the earth. He's going to be teaching. You want to hear a Bible study? Wait till he starts to uh, do things in the millennium in terms of bringing the Word out of God out, not only in His words, but in watching His life. And uh, everyone will have this kind of spiritual clarity. I mean, I, I, we've talked about it before, but I read this Bible, and I've, I don't know how many times I've read through the Bible since 1980, but it's been a whole bunch of times. And I'll tell you, I still feel like I'm scratching the surface and uh, I'll know I'll never, ever uh, feel any different than that. In this age, wow, we're going to really go, wow, I'm getting it now in a way that I never have before. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammers will be ready to speak plainly. And so, God's truth is going to be spoken. It's going to be understood by everyone. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser shall be called bountiful, for the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when uh, the needy speaks justice. And so God is speaking of the time in which people during the millennium, they will not be the victims of corrupt leaders, godless leaders. These kind of men will be exposed for who and what they really are in contrast to what a real leader is, and that is Jesus himself. So today, you know, it's funny, you, uh, it's funny how you can manipulate people and how powerful propaganda is. 
and how definitions of noble and good and right and wrong, these definitions get turned upside down and on their head, and that's the kind of age that we're living in. It's a goofy time in our country like never before in my life has these definitions been turned upside down. But you have all around the world today, you have dictators who have great propaganda machines, and this has been all through history, who are horrible leaders, oppressive leaders, abusive leaders, but they crank up the uh, propaganda machine and they convince the population that they could never have it better than they uh, have it. And the same kind of thing can happen today with the use of the media related to uh, elected officials or concerning uh, legislation that is unrighteous but they present as righteous and this kind of thing. But all of that, there won't be any of that that goes on in uh, the kingdom age uh, at all. Every kind of person like that is going to be exposed in the light of the beauty and the righteousness and the justice of Jesus himself. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity uh, he shall stand. And so this is saying that those who rule with the Messiah, they will be noble. God will pick out his, those who are going to rule and reign with him. So he may be talking about the apostles here. Um, I don't know. The Bible says that for those, of us, for, for those of us as Christians, that at his second coming and after his second coming is when this kingdom age, this thousand-year reign begins, that we will come back with him at his second coming, and we will rule and reign with him on the earth. So we're not going to be in a place where like everybody else that populates the earth that survived the great tribulation, and maybe people sometimes wonder, could we fall in that great final temptation of the devil at the end of the thousand-year reign? No, not at all. We'll already be in our glorified bodies. We'll already be past that. We're going to rule and reign with the Lord. And so, uh, where will you rule and reign? Maybe you'll rule and reign over uh, Jordan or over Egypt or uh, over Carmel. Uh, Pacific Grove, uh, Palo Alto, um, or Denair, or uh, Dubai, or whatever it might be. But we're going to rule and reign with him, and he's going to pick his rulers. You know what's really um, blesses me in the Old Testament, even in some of the kind of obscure parts where you've got the genealogies or God lists these people that he chose. For instance, when the children of Israel uh, were going to send spies into the land to spy out the land of Canaan, God chose those men. He chose them by name when he was uh, getting together people in order to build all of the uh, art. Uh, Articles that would make up a part of the tabernacle and, and uh, the tabernacle itself and all of the objects that were used in the worship of the Lord. He chose those people by name. And uh, so uh, he knows he's watching. He knows what he's built into our lives and, and who he's going to put into this position and that position. And all of that's going to occur during his reign. Rise up, you women who are at ease. All right, here's a verse for underlining. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. Now, sometimes a woman can read this and be, have a, be a little bit of an affront to her. Now, remember that the Lord has been uh, fairly, well, more than fairly, He's been very firm with the men, with uh, men who are in position of power, positions of wealth and influence. He has been rebuking them all the way through this book. And so it isn't like um, God is now turning to the women of Judah and saying, listen, the whole country is collapsing because you're complacent uh, in the middle of, you know, great danger in terms of the history of your nation, and it's, it's all your fault. Um, what he's saying here to them, and these were kind of the aristocratic, the upper crust kind of folks. These were uh, probably the women who were married to the rulers, to the most powerful and the most wealthy within the country. Here is this great Assyrian threat, and they're just living life as if um, this judgment that God is promising coming from Assyria isn't going to happen, just like God is talking for his health, as the old saying goes. So they're not taking God seriously at all. And the reason that God pulls these women out and, and rebukes them is because women have a very unique place 
in his work and in, in a unique place in the world. Remember, God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. We are different. And uh, so the federal government can send me $10 million that they're going to spend this year to discover why and if men and women are different from one another. They are different from one another in every way you want to talk about difference. And it's wonderful. And, and so here is this, the fact that what men are called to do and be important, that we be faithful to that, but what women are called to do and be just as important that they be faithful. And what God is saying here is that once, the, once women are uh, lost in the culture, once they're absorbed by the culture, you're maternal. You bring the next generation into the world. You bring the babies into the world. You raise them not day by day. You raise them by minute and by the hour. You have a connection with the future, the health of wherever you live that sometimes even men don't get. But once a woman, it becomes like the men, and she decides, well, the men aren't holding the line, so we'll just cave and become what it, we'll just do what they want, they're doing, and, and uh, we'll uh, make them our example instead of God's calling upon our life. Once the women hit that place within a nation, they're through. Through. It's the, it is the last line of defense. When I look at the health of this nation and I look at statistics and these kind of things, my interest is always in the women, always in the children, always in the family unit. Once that's lost, everything is lost. And it is a wonderful thing as a woman to realize this. I don't know how many of you remember way, way back at the beginning of Women's Lib, and I'm not going to get into that whole thing because it's an explosive subject. There were a lot of things that needed to be rectified and have been rectified uh, through the years. There are other things where that movement got off base a little, uh, a little bit on things. But when I was a kid, I remember they used to have cigarette ads on television back then, and, um, and remember Virginia Slim's. You've come a long way, baby. And then there's the cigarette for the women and the whole thing. And so the whole idea was, you're, you know, you've come a long way. You're becoming like men and so forth and so forth. And that's the pressure of the culture is to become more and more like men and sure, equal pay for equal job, all of that. We get that. But what God is concerned about is morally, is spiritually, and women must not. If the men have caved and lost it and have completely forsaken their place and their role of responsibility, that can never be an excuse for you to do that. Women holding the line within a nation has turned more than one nation around in human history while God is getting us knuckleheads and getting through to us. And so this is the rebuke. This is what's behind the rebuke. And he's, he's, he's looking for hope. He's, he's getting desperate in terms of, okay, who can I get to wake up to all of this? And he speaks to the women about their role and they're complacent in the ideas that they're at rest. They're living a careless life. I mean, it's like Imelda Marcos, who had how many 30,000 pairs of shoes in her closet before that dictatorship got overthrown. I mean, it's just living these careless kind of lives when it was a time for women to put all of that kind of stuff away, all that I, me, self-pleasure, and, and, uh, and my own life experience away and rise up for the sake of the nation. And he gives warnings concerning what will happen if they don't. For the vintage, the harvest will fail. The gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourself, make yourself bare, and gird sackcloth on your waists. Listen, stop spending all your time and all your money and effort and mental focus on all of these things. Strip down to 
life, the simplicity of life, having food and raiment, with this we shall be complete, content. Remember, these are God's people. These are not pagans in Edom. These are not pagans in Egypt. He's talking to his own people here. Strip back to a life where your necessities are being met and then give yourself to the place of influence that I have given to you. Otherwise, he says further of the consequences, people shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. He says, if you don't step up, Everything from the land to the buildings to the palaces to the cities, they're going to be wiped out. And then he takes in this moment of this strong exhortation here, the focus of Isaiah goes once again to uh, the kingdom age, the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people in that thousand-year reign until the Spirit is poured out from us, uh, uh, upon us from on high. One of the characteristics of the kingdom age, and it's wonderful, the single great and dominant and almost exclusive influence in the world during the kingdom age will be the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? Not man's spirit, not a spirit of this world, not a demonic, the dem, demonic spirits in that realm. God's Holy Spirit will be the great influence during the kingdom age. And the wilderness becomes like a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. And God speaks of the fertility of the land during the kingdom age. What a farmer would look at, maybe someone who's raising almonds, they would look and say, this is a fruitful field. God says, in the kingdom age, you'll look at the yields you're getting off of those trees. You'll be embarrassed to ever have thought that that was fruitful, what a tree could do. And so what is going to happen in terms of agriculture in the kingdom age is going to be amazing, and uh, a fruitful field is going to be, he says, counted as a forest. In other words, you're going to come in, guy's going to be boasting as a farmer, look at this, look at the yield we've got. And they've said, listen, that's like the yield of uh, cedar trees. You don't have almonds there. And uh, again, speaking about how productive the land will be, in the kingdom age. And the justice, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, righteousness remain in the fruitful field, the work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance uh, forever. So, in terms of the soul, in terms of spirituality, it will be a time in which we live in peace and uh, quietness and assurance or confidence. And so that's always the blessing of righteousness and justice is what is there in verse 17, peace and quietness and confidence. No people in this world will ever know peace and quietness an assurance independent of righteousness. It will never happen. And that's what's happening, for instance, in our country. I can't talk about Ecuador. I'm not a pastor there. So excuse me for bringing up the United States. But that's why this nation is moving further and further away from peace and quietness and assurance, confidence, in the heart of its citizens because we know we are moving away from the definitions of righteousness and justice that God has given mankind from His Word. No justice, no peace. No righteousness, no peace. These are statements that have been hijacked from God, and people think that this new breed of person has uh, developed this out of the blue. God's been saying it for thousands of years. No righteousness, no justice, then you will not know peace, you will not know quietness, and you will not know uh, assurance. My people will dwell 
in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places, though hail comes down on the force that speaks of God's enemies during the kingdom age, and the city that is the capital of his enemies is brought low in humiliation. And so, important to realize in the kingdom age, it doesn't mean that things are going to be sinless. God will have his enemies. There will be people that will fight against him, fight against his reign of righteousness. They won't want to live that life. And Jesus will reign, we're told in the Psalms, and rule with a rod uh, of iron. And, uh, and so, but wherever his enemies rise up, uh, God will judge them uh, decisively. Blessed are you who sow beside all, all waters, who send out freely the feet of the oxen and the donkey. During the kingdom age, you'll be able to plant your crops and plant your trees next to great water supplies and rivers, and you won't have to worry about going home and coming back and finding out that somebody came along and back there pick up and uh, harvested your crop for you and stole it. Or uh, you can let your animals, your livestock loose to graze, and nobody will touch them. Nobody will uh, steal them. So again, the beauty of, of how different the world can be and it will be during the kingdom uh, age. Chapter 33 is uh, a record of God's overthrow and His promise to overthrow the Assyrians. And so, chapter uh, 33 brings this a series of chapters, 28 to 33, the series of woes that God was pronouncing to a conclusion. And He concludes the series of woes by uh, talking about the oppressor who would be destroyed, that the Lord would be exalted. And so, what is true of, uh, of Assyria and the destruction of Assyria is also going to be true of every one of his enemies at the end of the age. And so, he speaks of uh, the plunder being plundered, speaking directly to uh, uh, Assyria here. Woe to you who plunder, and they were plundering everyone, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. This speaks to the fact that when Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria, came against Jerusalem, he approached King Hezekiah, who was a good king, and he said to Hezekiah, um, I I'm going to conquer Jerusalem unless you uh, uh, provide me with a certain amount of wealth, money, a, a ransom so that I don't destroy the city. And Hezekiah, to his, it was a fault of his. Uh, he was otherwise a good king, but he made mistakes, and this was one of his bigger mistakes. Instead of turning to the Lord immediately, he will turn to the Lord later, as we'll see in the following week. But he, instead of turning to the Lord immediately, he gathered up all kinds of wealth and he began to strip Jerusalem and even the area of the temple of its valuable metals in order to send it out as a payment to Sennacherib that Sennacherib would back off from conquering Jerusalem. Sennacherib took the wealth and then attacked Jerusalem anyway. And, and, and why did he do it? Because he could. But what he didn't realize is there's a God that watches all of this. And God watched the treachery with which he treated uh, Hezekiah and treated Jerusalem. And he said, you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. They did me wrong in paying that to you, but they did you right in paying, and you didn't keep your word. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. And when you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. And then in verse 2, Isaiah, and again, uh, voicing the prayer of a godly remnant that existed at that time, oh Lord, I mean, things are scary. I mean, here we are, we're in a relatively warm room, and we're in pretty comfortable seats, and and uh, life is peaceful right now. We're not afraid somebody's going to come in and shoot the place up or whatever. And, but their world was very, very in, up in the air. I mean, they've got Assyria right outside the walls of the city. And so they cry out, Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. God, no, we're a small minority. We, we, 
So few are waiting on you, the power brokers, the wealthy, the leaders, the men of influence. And, and so here we are, we're just a small group of powerless people. Nobody else is waiting on you, but we're waiting on you. Would you allow that to make a difference? And it's so important to realize that God always notices a praying minority in any environment and that, that praying minority, godly minority, makes a difference. God hears the prayers, and he answers the prayers. So often we look at it and say, well, they've got this, and then this is moving here, and it looks hopeless, and oh, well, let's do what we can to buckle ourselves in. It's going to be a wild ride. There's no use in us praying. What can we do to turn it around? Pray, and God hears the prayers. And so we have, wait, we have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. God, break the back of this uh, Assyrian enemy who's come against us. When you lift yourself up, the nations will be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of uh, the caterpillar. They're saying, God, it would be as easy for you to defeat this great Assyrian army that's camped outside our walls as it would be for me to pick up a caterpillar. This beautiful faith, very poetic, but beautiful faith that's being expressed. And then they declare that God would judge Assyria as the running to and fro of the locusts. He shall run upon them. And so, what are locusts doing when they're running to and fro? They are wiping out your crop. And so, he's saying basically, wipe them out as thoroughly as a horde of locusts wipes out any crop that they land upon. And then their confidence that the Lord would work for them is expressed. They said, the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. And so, uh, this has a near um, application to Isaiah's day, but verses 5 and 6 will find their fullest fulfillment again during uh, the kingdom age. Surely they're valiant ones. And uh, so, this cry for the, the, the intervention of God being needed here, surely God uh, declares, or Isaiah declares, surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. So, when they went out and they brought all of this loot to Sennacherib to buy him off, to pay him off so he wouldn't attack Jerusalem, and then he continues his aggression, they realized that their plan uh, to align with Egypt and, and all to, for deliverance, that all of this was, uh, there was no hope for them apart from God. And so they come back to Jerusalem weeping, were all doomed, was how they looked at it, these that were trusting in Egypt. The highways lie waste because of the Assyrian presence. They conquered all of Judah except Jerusalem. He has broken the covenant. Sennacherib's broken his word. He's despised the cities. He's conquered everything but Jerusalem. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. He'd already conquered um, uh, Lebanon. Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel uh, shake off their fruits. And so, all of these sections of uh, Judah and even beyond had been devastated. And God here promises now to answer their prayers. Isn't that beautiful? Lord, you know, here we are. We're just a, a group of five people in a home in our neighborhood, and here's the need, and we lift it up to you. I mean, what can the prayers of five people do in the light of what's going on all around us? I'll tell you, God hears it. And God answered, and he said, Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Those are nice words. God says, all right, I'm getting up. He says, all right, this is going to be good. And he speaks to Assyria, you shall conceive chaff and you shall bring forth stubble. In other words, 
Assyria was pregnant with the thought of destroying Jerusalem. And he says, you're not destroying anybody. All you're going to bring forth out of this pregnancy of your dream of, of defeating Jerusalem is going to be stubble, and, uh, and the fire is going to devour your chaff and stubble. It's going to be useless before me. And the people shall become like burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. And so God says, I'm going to make quick work of them and a thorough work of them. And when it talks about thorns burning, thorns burn very, very quickly. Uh, lime, it works very, very slowly to disintegrate a body or to even disintegrate bones. But it's very thorough in what it does. God, again, is using uh, language and imagery that they were very familiar with to say, I will destroy them and judge them quickly, and I will do so thoroughly. Hear you who are afar off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. So God knows that his destruction of this great Assyrian military, that the word of this is going to spread very quickly throughout all that part of the world. And so he tells them, uh, listen to this news that is uh, coming to you and also those in Jerusalem. And this great miracle of the destruction of Assyria's army would produce fear in the sinners in Zion, in Jerusalem. They have been living rebellious lives. They're not willing to give up their idolatry. They're not willing to trust in God. Now God has judged Assyria so decisively that they think to themselves, uh-oh, we're in real trouble because if he did that to the Assyrians, then we must be next on the menu. And they had a legitimate fear uh, for their safety before the holiness of God. And so they were afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us, they ask, shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? God is going to uh, wipe us out. And so what kind of a life do we need to live in order to be safe in the holiness and the strength and the power of a God that is like this. And God then answers them in just a beautiful, beautiful verse in verse 15. God didn't need to answer them, but he did because it was a good question. And God answers uh, good questions. And here's who can stand before him. And not only stand before him, but expect his blessing. And he gives a six-fold description. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, he hates corruption, who gestures with his hands in refusing bribes. In other words, he wants to be so honest that if somebody comes and offers him a bribe, it isn't like, uh, listen, can you run that by me one more time and let me think about it before I say no? Somebody comes to him with a bribe and it's like, no, what are you talking about? Get away from me. I'm not going to do anything for money like that and displease the Lord. In other words, it comes from something deep in them, from a deep place in their heart. And God says, this is where I want things to, to come from. He gestures with his hands, uh, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. He doesn't take pleasure in, in crime and, and the violence that that sheds innocent blood. He shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. This is the kind of person who can dwell in the confidence that they will be provided for and be safe in a world that is setting itself up for God's judgment. It's a great uh, couple of verses, 15 and 16, for your own individual study and edification. And then in verse 17, we have a description once again of Jerusalem and the kingdom age, your eyes, and, uh, and it'll be our eyes as well, the righteous he's talking about, will see the king in his beauty. I cannot wait to see Jesus. And I, am, I have no doubt he will be the most beautiful thing I have ever laid my eyes on. And I don't mean that in a feminine sense, but I don't take it away either. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and they will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate 
on terror? Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? Talking about aggressors like Assyria before they would conquer and destroy nations. You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of a stammering tongue that cannot understand. God is saying here that every memory of in human history of terrible wars and oppression and bloodshed, you won't even remember it. It'll be a thing of the past. Look upon Zion, the city of our uh, appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, and in that kingdom age, she'll be a, 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 a place that will be quiet, will be peaceful, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken, but there the majestic Lord will be for us, a, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your tackle is loosed, they could not strengthen their mast, they could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided, the lame will take the prey, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick, the people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. And so, it's kind of a long but very poetic, very meaningful way of God saying, I will be a protection to Jerusalem in the way that great rivers are a protection to other cities in the world. And so, uh, Babylon was protected by the Tigris-Euphrates River. It was a tremendous uh, barrier for attack. And God says of Jerusalem, you have no rivers. It is high, high up on a, and, and built on a series of mountains. But he said, I will be a river of protection to you. Chapter 34, come near you nations to hear and heed you people. And so God says, listen up. And in chapter 34, he begins to talk about here the um, judgment that's going to come upon the whole world. And so in chapter 33, he's talking about uh, God bringing his judgment on the Assyrians. Now his thoughts then, in thinking about then, turns to a judgment that the whole world is deserving of, and he'll judge the whole world as he did uh, the Assyrians. And this is called the Great Tribulation uh, period. And so he said, come near you nations to hear and heed or listen, you people. So God says to the whole world, even today, listen up. I want to tell you what's coming so that you can be prepared for it. And of course, the one great preparation is to be right with God and clear out of here before the great tribulation occurs. So God says, listen up. When God says, listen up, we ought to listen up. I had a seventh grade homeroom teacher. His name was Mr. Deming. When Mr. Deming said, listen up, you listened up. That's all there was to that. Or the next thing you heard was this, pack up your gear and get out. And you packed up your gear and you got out. I loved Mr. Deming. He made us memorize poetry, though. And I, have, I am terrible at memorization. We had to memorize the poem Trees. I don't know if that was a part of the torture of your childhood as well. But I got up and absolutely froze and tried to deliver that. And I pulled a line from here and a line from there and a line from here and a line from there and then gave up completely and sat down. <laughs> the assignment. But... And then what is, God calls me to do this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so God says, listen up. We ought to listen up. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes forth. And he speaks of his coming judgment, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all of their armies. Now, during the uh, this is talking about uh, the battle of Armageddon that will happen. You see the word armies is 
is plural. And so in the Battle of Armageddon, which uh, uh, occurs when a great army of 200 million comes out of the East, uh, China has boasted since the 1970s that they could uh, field an army of 200 million. So there'll be an army that will come out of the east, there will be the Antichrist's army, and there will be an army that will come out of the north, out of Gog and Magog, who has recovered from a devastation that occurs to them seven years earlier. These three armies converge upon one another in the valley of Megiddo in Jerusalem, intent upon fighting one another. Uh, they're, they, they're going to attempt to destroy one another. Jesus, at that moment, leaves heaven at His second coming. We come with Him. His destination is the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, where it is prophesied that He will step down, that mountain will be split in two, and then He will walk in through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. But He comes to the Mount of Olives by way of the valley of Megiddo. When they see Him, their hatred of Him is so much greater than their hatred of one another that the three armies unite now to fight Him. And so they turn to fight against Him, and we don't, all we know in terms of what the battle is like, it's not much of a battle. Jesus speaks something from His mouth. A sword comes from His mouth is the imagery that's used, and the battle is over. And the bodies that are heaped up after this battle are as high as a horse's bridle throughout the entire valley of Megiddo. And that valley stretches 153 miles. And so here are these armies. They're going to come against him. God speaks of the day. All of this is given in greater detail in the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. His fury is against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He's given them over to the slaughter, and their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall be, uh, rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. So much blood, it'll be like melting snow. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. So somehow when Jesus speaks, and remember, Jesus spoke these, the world into creation, the universe into existence. And so somehow, whatever he speaks, there is a, uh, something occurs in the heavens as a part of this battle and the destruction of that great army. For my sword will be bathed in heaven, and it shall come down on Edom. And here he speaks about a judgment that is going to come uh, upon Edom, which was a uh, country that was a neighbor of uh, Israel or of Judah and he speaks of a judgment against Egypt as kind of a type of a judgment that's going to come upon the whole earth. And he picks Edom as a type of the world because of Edom's long, long history of hostility toward the Jews. And in the last days, the Bible says that Israel is going to stand all alone against the whole world. Who is Israel's one true friend in the world today, United States of America. Would you say we're becoming a stronger friend to Israel or a weaker friend? Not from our perspective, from their perspective. I would say they aren't counting on us for much. Not currently, that's for sure. But the fact of the matter is, despite what we are or we aren't right now, the Bible teaches that one day Israel is going to stand alone against the whole world, except they're not going to stand alone at that moment in time. But that's where the world is going. You look at this, how the world, look at the universities in the United States of America who are divesting themselves of investments in anything that is Israeli because of the whole uh, Palestinian and, and Muslim uh, thing that's going on in so many of the universities. We think it is dangerous to be a Jew, like, uh, not, like not since, not since um, World War II. 
Is it more dangerous to be a Jew in Europe than it is to be a Jew in Europe right now? The persecution that's happening in France, happening all across Europe, the number of Jews who are leaving Europe to go to Israel, they see the handwriting on the wall, they sense it. They've been through this before. But here's the point that I'm making, is that Edom is a picture of the whole world and its opposition of the Jews. And God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless thee, and I will curse those who curse thee. If I had a nickel or a billion dollars to either bet on the long-term survival of Israel or the whole world, I'd bet every penny of it on Israel. Because God stands behind that nation. He is not yet done with the Jewish people. There is still work that he is going to do in them and through them. And so here is this, again, Edom is used as this example, as an example of the world because of their long history of persecution against the Jews. And that will be the tone of the world toward the Jews in the last days, which um, is another reason for believing that the Lord's return is very near. And so he said, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great sacrifice in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls, their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. And God speaks of his destruction of Edom in terms of a sacrifice. He's, he is defining the animals in a sacrifice, the context of a sacrifice. So he describes the coming, the destruction of the Edomites in the context of a sacrifice, the coming uh, great tribulation and and, uh, and Armageddon in the context of a sacrifice. Why? What he's communicating is, when I am forced to judge in this way, my judgment will be holy. And judgment is simply holiness coming into contact with unrighteousness. And that's what happens in this scene and will happen in the Great Tribulation, including the Battle of Armageddon. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And here you have it in verse 8. The cause of this judgment upon Edom as a type of the world is because of the treatment of Zion, Jerusalem, the Jews. Its stream shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever, but the pelican and... Um, where'd it go? There it is. Okay. Sometimes the lines move on me. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and over the stones of emptiness. And they shall call its nobles to the kingdom. But none shall be there and its princes shall be nothing. The thorns and thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles. Again, this this description of the coming destruction upon Edom as this type, this picture. Nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There shall also there also shall the hawks be gathered, every one of them with her mate. And God says, I'm going to remove people, and this your land is going to be dominated by animals once again, and I'm going to make sure of it. Search from the book of the Lord and read, none of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate. 
for my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them, and has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall possess it. Speaking of the completeness of his judgment upon Edom, and there will one day characterize the whole world. Very quickly, chapter 35. Here we move into the kingdom age. Again, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. I mean, that's tremendous. We, we speak in this, this imagery of land that is right along a river, but even in that age, the deserts are going to be beautiful and blooming. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And so, three of the most beautiful and most fertile regions of that part of the world at that time was Lebanon, uh, Carmel, and the Valley of Sharon. And so, God says the whole of Israel is going to be that fertile in the coming kingdom age. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. And here speaking about that godly remnant that is concerned about everything that's going around, uh, around them. Again, we talk about how fearful the circumstances were for them. Imagine if we had a wall around Jerusalem, and we know that the, or around Modesto, and we know that as soon as Assyria gets through that wall, they start decapitating people and skinning them alive. That's the kind of fear that they're facing for themselves and for their family the next day so or, or coming any day for them so here they are their fear is so great it's it they physically can't control their body their knees are shaking their hands are shaking and so god said strengthen the weak hands his word of encouragement to them and make the firm the feeble knees say to those who are fearful hearted be strong and do not fear Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so, God will have the final say in human history, not what men are doing, and His peace is going to prevail. And so, the answer here to the fear is God telling him, be strong, don't fear. God is strong, and He will come, and He will save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. There'll be no blindness in the kingdom age. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and so there won't be any deafness and, uh, or any hearing aids at that time. The lame shall leap like deer, no arthritis or anything like that. We'll have wonderful joints at that time. I don't know that I've ever leapt like a deer. So, if the lame get to leap like a deer, maybe I will be able to dunk from the free throw line. We will see. And the tongue of the dumb will sing, for the water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground, the worst soil in uh, Israel shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and uh, rushes. So very fertile the land will become. And then in verse 8, as we saw this morning, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. And whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast to go on it. It shall, be, it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And so the highway of holiness that will exist in the kingdom age and uh, as it's described here, and as we mentioned this morning, and I refer you to our Bible study this morning for a fuller handling of this passage, it also has an equal application to 
the Jews returning from their Babylonian captivity and also to us as Christians who are in the midst of a pilgrimage on our way from this sanctuary here tonight, on our way to a very real heaven that one day awaits us. Let's stand together and we'll pray.